me in your copy of the scriptures to the, the last revelation of God, of his son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father. And Revelation chapter 1 will be the beginning of our reading, and I really uh, invite you to follow along as I read. And then we will move over after chapter 1 into chapter 3 to the, the last letter to, this, to the last church in the list of churches of seven of them. And verse 14, and we'll be looking at Christ's letter to the church of Laodicea. The title of the message this morning is, Is Christ the Amen? Christ the Amen. So let's read together in chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray together with me? Father, give us eyes to see the words that you have given to us. Give us ears to hear the voice of Christ. And our hearts pray this morning is that every heart hears the voice of the shepherd this morning and then keeps the word. Oh, amen. Faithful, true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Exalt yourself. Stand here in the midst of us. As we behold you, let us respond in obedience, submission, hot-hearted devotion. And let us hear all that you have to say to the churches this morning. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, lukewarmness, lukewarmness is not a disease. 
It's not a disease of the heart. It, it actually is the symptom of a more serious condition, a serious condition of the heart, self-reliance. Lukewarm isn't the serious disease. It is just the symptom. It is how self-reliance manifests itself. It's the outward signals. It's the cough. It's the, it's the headache. It's the fever that something more serious is taking place. That's what lukewarmness is. Self-reliance is the disease. Maybe you're sitting here today and you are willing to admit that you are lukewarm right now towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You're willing to be honest about that. You have just enough warmth in your heart that you came to church today, just enough warmth in your heart that you would sing and you would fellowship among the people, perhaps with some expectancy that maybe something would light your fire a little bit. You have just enough warmth of heart to read the Bible and sometimes even enough warmth of heart towards the Lord to pray when things are hard. But you also are just cool enough that you give up very little treasure to find a close relationship with Jesus Christ. You give very little up in pursuing his love firstly in your life. This lukewarm person is born again, but they're neither cold nor hot in their faith. And probably as, as one would think about how this has happened to us, there's probably not a time or anything we can really put our finger on, here's where I begin to become lukewarm. You know, here's, this is where I started to not be hot in my fervency, my love, my jealousy for Jesus Christ. Probably isn't a, a, a way in which to really pinpoint, here's where I grew cooler towards the Lord. It just sort of happened, and now here we are with these symptoms, with this cough. How did it happen? How did this complacency, how did this apathy settle in and become an acceptable mode of operation? How did it become my attitude of living? How did I get lukewarm? It happens when the followers of the king forget their need for the king in their life. It happens when believers, when followers of Christ forget that they need Jesus and they need him to be their king, their commander, their Lord. It happens when we become too confident, when we become too comfortable, and sometimes even too successful at making things work without Jesus Christ. And so we come to believe that we can make life work by our own self-reliance. Laodicea, was a city that became a pantheon of wealth and independence. It, like some of the other previous cities that we had mentioned, had suffered 
a series of devastating earthquakes. One was in 16 AD, and then one later, I think around 60 AD, which would have been within a generation of this writing of this letter. And this city was decimated. It is told that really nothing was left standing in this beautiful and opulent city. If you've studied Corinth with its uh, manufacturing of, of brass and, and its opulence, its luxuriousness, Laodicea was similar in its prestige, its prominence. So wealthy was Laodicea that when it was leveled by this earthquake and the Roman Empire said, here's some funds and, you know, maybe in our vernacular, FEMA and whatever to, to, re- to rebuild your city. Laodicea didn't touch a single coin from the Roman Empire, instead sought after the treasure in their own banks and built their city from the gro- rebuilt their city from the ground up. A very wealthy city. But it seems that this self-reliance, even of the culture, of we don't need Rome, I mean, we're part of Rome, we'll, we'll be part of it, but we don't really need Rome's wealth, we don't need Rome's, Rome's money to rebuild. It seems that the culture of the city became the culture of the church. Is that possible, by the way? I think this is a, a demonstration to us here that the church can very much, instead of become contradictory to the world, can become companions or become an imitation of the world. Not necessarily in significant things like compromised truth, you know. Not necessarily in, in things that become culturally necessarily acceptable, but in the spirit of pride, in the spirit of self-reliance. So it seems that Laodicea is established here as this last letter culminating. And, and it really is interesting because if you were to put like, if you were to put a needle or a scale of churches, of the seven churches, maybe you would put some hot ones at the beginning like Philadelphia. You know, that's hot. And, and some other ones like, like the cold ones like Smyrna, you know, on the other side of the scale, the other side where the gauge is and the needle swing, and then maybe Laodicea, uh, put it as number four, you know, in the middle of the seven churches, represent the lukewarmness. But I would like to just draw attention to suggest to you that the letters of the churches may even be building towards this final word that if you say, hey, God, I praise you, I'm hot. Or if you say, God, I repent, I'm cold. But if you don't recognize you're neither one of those, then Jesus is making one last appeal to the church and saying there's another category of believers out there that you might fall into. And actually might be the spirit of the church, not just an individual, but it becomes the spirit of the church. Do you recognize, believer, brother and sister in the Lord, that the church's growth in Christ is impacted to the negative or the positive by your individual growth in Christ. The sum is not greater than, than the parts. 
But so often we, we may dismiss our participation, our involvement, our partnership as just being a, an individual. Hey, I'm making this decision, but I'm thankful the rest of the church is faithful. But we discount the fact that actually that is an insidious disease that does, in fact, listen, sin never stops with one person. It, it, it invades and, it, and it, it is pervasive in people all around. We cannot stop the effects of sin, of our sin. And we wish we could. A lot of times we're like going out and trying to catch back, you know, trying to, to sort, of, um, sort of make amends, you know, sort of at least do cons- some uh, control, some, some damage control from our own sin. But listen, when our heart is lukewarm towards Jesus Christ, it does affect others around us. Laodicea had no water supply of itself. It, it relied upon some aqueducts that had uh, channeled its way into uh, Laodicea from, from distances away. Uh, Laodicea, actually, these aqueducts remained standing for a very long time uh, throughout the ancient history because anybody that overtook Laodicea didn't touch the aqueducts because they wanted to re- keep them there so they could have a successful city. But by the time the water reached the city on these aqueducts who had been heated by the sun and, and the stone and all that, it, it was by the time it became the drinking water, it wasn't like the, the lush and rich rivers running through Ephesus. It was, it was tepid and lukewarm. They didn't have the luxury that we do of, of ice, you know, and coolers and, and even hot pots and coffee makers to make things hot. They, they just had this water that they would drink. Not only the culture was reflected in the spirit of apathy, complacency, lukewarmth of the church, but even its geography, its typography was, was also a, an illustration uh, of the spiritual lukewarmth of the people. This church had a very... Um, a very faithful leadership in it. And Philemon's son, who the Apostle Paul writes a short letter to Philemon, his son is named Archippus, and it's in Colossians 4.17 and Philippians chapter 2, if you want to look up. Paul has great reverence and great great um, commendation for Archippus. And matter of fact, in Philippians 2, he addresses the he begins with his address to the church of Philippi, and he says, to the beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that is in your house. This church had some, some faithful uh, legacy of leaders in it, and yet somehow had grown lukewarm. Paul calls unto Archippus, in the letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 4, 17, and he says to Archippus, as one of the, the fathers of the church, one of the, the elders of the church, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Fulfill your calling. Don't, don't be slack. Don't give up. Don't be weary. Don't be negligent. But fill up the calling of Christ as you lead his church. So this church had... Uh, It had a a history. It was a well-established church. It had all the reason to succeed. And yet when Jesus finds it here with this letter, 
he finds it lukewarm. Inherent within this text is an address about clothing. It's helpful also not only for us to recognize the wealth of the city and the aqueducts led into the city, but also there was a a significant clothing industry, a a fabric industry taking place. There was a soft black wool, the, the sheep and the rams, the goats, things, all of them outside of the city and in the city was, this was a a significant source of, uh, of livestock that, that produced black wool, which became very distinguishing, very beautiful as a part of clothing, very unique. It was in a lot of other places that were just pull, were putting out this, this thing. And so when you're walking around Laodicea, you're strolling around in your black wool. And if you're visiting Colossae and you wear black wool, you are from Laodicea. Everybody knew it. And so it was a very significant thing. And it was, it was something beautiful in this way. But Jesus comes to them and he begins with this self-revelation of some titles that are important for us to look at this morning. Jesus says of himself, he is the amen. Now, that's an unusual name for someone. We usually use it as a word at the end, like we had already said it twice in Revelation 1 in our reading, didn't we? So, so let it be, so be it. I affirm this. I want this to be true. This is true. But Jesus says, I am the epitome of the amen. I am the amen. I am the words. I am the one who has made all these words to be amen. I am the amen, so let it be. I am so established. This is what is true. And he reiterates that, colors it a little bit with saying he is the faithful and true witness. You can, you can believe upon things because you can examine me and find out that I am the faithful and true witness. I am the faithful and true witness. And how we know, at least in one way, that Jesus is the faithful and true witness is that Jesus has demonstrated that he is trustworthy, not merely by his death on the cross, but by his resurrection from the grave. Now, a dear friend of ours wrote in a, on this passage some time ago, John Duck shared with me some of his writings on the book of Revelation. And when it comes to his comments on this, this title of Jesus, Faithful and True Witness, I find great insight and commend this to you, that there is the comment that Jesus is the number one ranking overcomer from whose perfect example all overcomers who follow derive their legitimacy. The reason why Jesus is able to say that he is the amen, that he is the faithful and the witness is because he says, look at my life. It is faultless. It is blameless. I am impeccable. So I am the amen. And I am the faithful one. And I am the true witness. And then he goes on to say he is a faithful and true witness. And then he says he is the beginning of creation. And this word beginning of creation by some cults in our world today claims that that this proves that Jesus was a created being, that he is not the third person of the Trinity, the second person of Trinity, that he is not deity himself, that he is an afterthought of God. But the beginning of creation doesn't mean beginning in order. It means beginning in, in authority. 
He is the number one of creation, not the first created thing of creation. He is the number one in rank. He is before all creation, Colossians chapter 1, and by him and through him all things consist. He is the originator. He is the before the creation. And Paul does a wonderful job exclaiming this in Colossians 1, which I commend to you for further reading and study. But this one who comes to them as the amen, the faithful and true witness in the beginning of creation says, I know your works. And this is a humbling thing. Do you know that God knows our works? God knows what we're up to and he knows what we're not up to. He is aware of these things. He is very concerned about these things. He says, I know your works. And he says, you are neither cold nor hot. You are neither cold nor, nor, nor hot. And the would that you are either cold or hot. Now, that's an interesting thing to say, and I'm pondering that and reading and considering other people's thoughts on this. Why would Jesus say, I would actually rather you be cold than lukewarm? We could understand he would certainly want us to be hot. That is the fervency, that passion of love, right? That's what he means by the hot. But you're like the water that came from the aqueducts. When people take a, a quick sip of it, they just want to spit it out. You're like that. I would rather you be cold. And why do what Jesus say? I would rather you be against me. I would rather you be not for me. I would rather you be completely cold and maybe even indifferent towards me if you want to say it that way. Why would you say that? We'll talk about that as we talk about the lukewarm here. Let's understand what the lukewarm means. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is explaining that um, there was a ritual, there was a uh, routine about serving God that had become part of Israel's worship. And he says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not accordance with knowledge. In 2 Timothy 3.5, the Apostle Paul talks about the times in which we're living, I believe, but that there's a, an appearance of true Christianity, but he says there are those who will hold to a form of godliness, although they deny the power thereof. So in order for us to understand more of what it means to be lukewarm in our love towards Christ, it may be helpful for us to contrast what is, what is the opposite, what is, what is the, the contrast to lukewarm. We notice in verse number 19 that Jesus offers the, the remedy for the sickness. In verse 19, the remedy to become something different, that it would be certainly hot, will be zeal. It'll be zeal. It'll be earnestness, if that helps. Zealousness, or zealous, is almost sounds exactly like the Greek word for zealous. And it's actually the same word that sometimes our Bible translates into jealous. So sometimes our translators would, would choose the word zealous, and sometimes they would use the word jealous. Really, in the New Testament, in this Greek, most of the time when this word that here in the book of Revelation is translated zealous, most of the time in the New Testament, 
the word is translated into the word jealous. Why would these theologians and scholars and students of the scripture, faithful men and women who have studied the languages and and sought to, to bring us about a faithful translation, why would they make this word into jealous if it means zealous? For us, jealousy seems like such a negative thing. It's generally thought to be something of envy, being full of envy. Apostle Paul tells the church of Ephesus, stop being so filled with jealousy, strife, and envy. But being the same word, being jealous and zealous, think with me on this. And some of these thoughts are borrowed from another commentator on this passage, Tim Keller. They're the same thing, zealous and jealous. You see, jealousy is to set your love intensely on someone or something. It's to seek after this thing with all passion and with all desire, that everything else becomes excluded, everything else becomes secondary. Jealousy for this thing is is an intense emotion set on a singular thing or a single person. So what is zealousness? It is that. It is to set before oneself a singular goal, a primary focus, a laser-like intentional pursuit, a passion that is tireless in pursuing this thing, person, or idea. It is jealousy. The lukewarm person is not a hypocrite. They are a people who believe that they are going through some of the motions. But the fact is that their passion, their zeal, their love, their jealousy is set on something other than Jesus Christ. And so how does a believer become complacent? How do we get into that realm of being lukewarm? We cease being jealous for God. We cease being jealous for God's things. So, the lukewarm to Jesus is repugnant, it's repulsive. To Jesus, more than the, more than the cold, And the lukewarm, if you were to approach them, they, they would become insulted and they would be offended that you would even ask, that they, are they a Christian? You say, I don't see fruit in your life. I mean, are you following Jesus Christ? I, I, just, I just wonder, how can I pray for you? I, I don't know that you're really holding fast to your confession. Are you really a child of God? And the lukewarm person is insulted by this. You see, the cold person will be honest about it. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. I never claimed to be a Christian. I'm still trying to figure it all out. But don't put that Christian tag on me. I'm, I'm cold towards Christ. I'm willing to admit that. 
And a cold, so then a cold person, you can enter into the conversation and say, oh, but you have not seen Christ, because if you had seen him, you would no longer be cold. And so a cold person can be moved. But a lukewarm person is very hard to move. It's very difficult to move from one side to another. Because the lukewarm person doesn't recognize, doesn't see that they are poor, that they are naked, and that they are blind. Why? Because they have put on their own robes, they're trusting in their own wealth, and they view themselves through their own eyes only. This church in Laodicea had become like the culture where like the culture was depending upon its own wealth, its own wool. Also, this culture was known to be a culture advanced in medical science. There were several medical schools in Laodicea. And there was this certain uh, mineral that was, that was found there in Laodicea that they had discovered had become helpful for healing of eyes from certain ailments. And it's, it's like Jesus has come to them, and, and he comes to them like an optometrist. And he says, you just aren't seeing things right. You're walking around without any clothes on, and you're walking around like, like you're, you're, wealth, you're wealthy, and you're dirt poor, you're bankrupt, but the problem is you don't see it. So as a doctor, I need to put on this salve on your eyes that you can see what you really look like, the, like the emperor's new wardrobe. So Jesus here in this passage takes the salve of the word of God, takes the salve from the one who has burnished bronze feet and a white robe and a two-edged sword and a, and a face that shines like the sun. And he takes this salve of the word. And what does he do to the people of Laodicea? What does he promise he will do? Now, there was previous churches where the wicked ones, he said, I will banish you. I will make you to lay down in the bed of your own sicknesses like the one who is named Jezebel among you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. What does Jesus say to the lukewarm? And there's part of us that's like, Ooh, I, I hope he wants to destroy them because that's how God is. That's how Jesus is. He's the, the pure one. He's the righteous one. And he cannot stand. He's going to spit them out. What does Jesus do to the people who are lukewarm? Think on that for a minute before I share with you what the word of God reveals. He does not pronounce judgment against them, against a lukewarm person. And you say here this morning, I, I've been willing to admit, I've been honest enough to say that I, I think I'm in that realm of lukewarm. But Jesus doesn't want to destroy you. But, the, but you might think he does. It's wrong. What does Jesus want to do for these people? He wants them to see themselves how he sees them and that's what he wants the lukewarm believer to see can we engage in the conversation 
by the word of God, Jesus is saying, for you to see what you look like. Will you hear my words? And then Jesus doesn't tell them. You need to clean up your act. You need to go get some garments. You need to, uh, you need to start treasuring the kingdom. What does Jesus say that he will do for them? He says, whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So he's reproving them, and here's the reproof. In verse number 18, I tell you, buy from me gold refined by fire. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Here's the thing. You can only get what you need from me. You can only get what you need from me. What is the gold refined by fire? That is the purpose, the pure and purposeful living for Christ. It is a testimony. It is a kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. It is seeking first God. Jesus says, come to me for gold. What is the economy? Buy from me gold? Can you afford righteousness? Can you afford this type of gold? So what is the transaction taking place? It is the zeal, repent transaction. How do you get gold? How do you buy the wealth that you receive in Jesus Christ? You humbly, you humbly admit you have no commodity, you have no currency to offer to receive the purity of Jesus Christ. And you say to God, you're right. I am wealthy, and yet I am bankrupt. And Jesus says, you have to get it from me. The white garments, that is this purified conscience and heart, the casting off of self-righteous living. I'm not going to robe myself with my own righteousness, my own self-righteousness. I'm going to walk confidently. I'm going to walk walk humbly, I'm going to walk with assurance in the promise that I have been delivered from the rags, the stained rags of my sin and my putrid thoughts, and I'm going to walk in the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am no better than anybody else because the robes that I have, I didn't put together. And the robes that I wear, I begged to receive. I could not afford them. And so I am not better than my neighbor. And I'm not better than, than Betty Baptist. And I'm not better than anybody in all the world. Because these robes are not mine. The only robes I brought were the black wool of the Laodicean pastures. And the salve for the eyes. 
get from me the salve for your eyes so that you may see. Oh, believer, do you want to see? What are we looking at here? What does Jesus want us to see? Certainly, he has seen to want to show us ourselves. But he only wants to show us ourselves, notice, so that we will no longer be covered in shame. But there's something else that he wants us to see. And he says there's something else he even wants us to hear. And to the lukewarm person, he doesn't say, I'm going to vomit you up and walk away. I'm disgusted with you. The thought of you makes me gag. And I'm going to leave you to your own self. You stink. Jesus says to the one who is poor and naked and blind, who's on the other side of the door, he says, I'm knocking on the door and I'm not only knocking, but I'm calling to you. Brad, can I come in? Can we sup? Can we feast? I want to see you, but what's really important is you need to see me. I'm on the other side of the door. I'm knocking and I'm calling. And if you let me come in, though you're naked and wretched and poor and blind, miserable in all of it, I've got a wardrobe for you. I've got a treasure chest. And I have something to help you finally see my majesty. So what? What about his majesty in this passage is in this passage? Well, look at it. He says to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As also I conquered and sit down with my father on his throne. Notice here, again, I want to refer to to John's comments on this passage. As John shared, this is an intimate gathering around the throne. And I would even say it's reflective of the intimate gathering that's around the table. He says, come in. I'm just going to come in your door, but I'm not just going to hang out with you and watch the football game. I'm going to enjoy a feast with you around this table. I with you, he says, and you with me. Jesus is like just compounding this. Hey, I just want to make sure you understand, like you're going to be with me and I'm going to be with you. Like this is going to be a thing. But with this also, Jesus says, there's not just a casual familiarity, but there's a majestic splendor that's associated with me being in your company. And you've got to see this. I've got to apply the salve to your eyes. You've got to open up your eyes because I'm full of majesty and glory. But don't be so drawn back by my majesty and glory to forget that I'm also relational. And here in this passage, the comment is made in this way. I also conquered and sit down with my father on his throne You who conquer, you who are overcomer in me, will sit down with the Father, not just with Almighty God, not with this grand title of of what one could think of as an impersonal God. But you sit down at the throne here shared by Jesus Christ, 
not just with the King of kings and Lord of lords, as if I could say just. Father, forgive me if any of that seems belittling. But you're sitting down on the throne with the Father, and not with the Father, but my Father, Jesus' Father, and then my Father, your Father. You're sitting down on the throne as family. There's your seat. What does Jesus want to show when he comes in the door? He wants you to behold his majestic splendor so that you would be awakened out of your lukewarm. He also wants you to know that there is, there's no need to draw back. Sit down next to him. Sit down next to the Father. Christ's voice isn't enough to just be heard. Jesus must be heard. Jesus must be heard. And so here in this passage, we find majesty and we find fellowship. See, the lukewarm person, the lukewarm person has forgotten what it is to have this fellowship in the majesty. And Jesus says, he says, I don't hate you for it. I'm not going to destroy you for your lukewarm. But will you start listening to my voice? And when you hear my voice, open the door, and you'll never be lukewarm again. Let's pray.